Welcome to Swanglinese, the only podcast talking the language of business here in the Middle East. Your hosts, Barry Lee Cummings and Oscar Andermo, give you their own insights, as well as interviewing business leaders in the region to help you on your entrepreneurial journey. Barry, Oscar, let's talk Swanglinese. Just before we get started, a quick word from one of our sponsors. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by CoBabble. CoBabble is a technology platform that aims to help you digitize and digitalize your business. Simple to use, massively powerful, and guaranteed to bring your paper-based archaic processes into the digital age. CoBabble leverages the smart device technology already in your employees' hands to help streamline processes, share information, as well as educate and train your workforce. Whether you have paper-based checklists, forms, or audits that need digitizing, are looking for a better way to communicate with your teams, need to train them on the go, or are looking to replace your existing system with one that is far more cost-effective, CoBabble is the tool for you. Check out CoBabble.com for more information, to request a demo, or sign up for your free trial. CoBabble, your digitization partner. Okay, and let's get on with it. Hello, and a very warm welcome to this episode of the podcast. This week in the virtual studio, I have the pleasure of the company of Rami. Rami, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very, very well. Thank you very much. Now, Rami's the CEO of a company called Washman, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But Rami, what we always do when we start these conversations is I ask our guests to uh, wind back the timeline a little bit uh, to the beginning of your professional career uh, and just give us a quick uh, overview of where you started, what you started doing, and then we'll come up to date to how we ended up uh, on a podcast in the Middle East talking about yourself and your current uh, organization. So take, take us back in time, Remy. Okay, amazing. Uh, we'll start from the, the second I was born. I think that's okay. usually... Um, so I was born in the US and uh, my parents, uh, my dad is a Palestinian refugee, but he was fortunate enough um, after living in the refugee camps in Jordan, uh, to go and study in the UK and in eventually Boston. So he graduated from uh, Northeastern University, came back to the region to work. Um, he's a computer engineer uh, in Saudi. And then um, he just wanted to solve all these problems uh, associated with being a Palestinian refugee. So getting an American passport was kind of a ticket. Um, I grew up in uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, went to middle school, in high school in Saudi. There was a brief stint where I lived in Canada as well. We became Canadians. Uh, so that was also important for my parents as uh, Palestinian refugees. And then um, in, uh, I went to university um, in uh, Montreal, uh, where I studied finance, uh, graduated in 2010. Uh, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So that was kind of always in the back of my head. My father is an entrepreneur himself. Uh, so I always you know, had conversations from a young age uh, about entrepreneurship. I'll give you an example. Um, I'll be in a restaurant eating a good burger. Instead of talking about how how good the burger is, we'll talk about, you know, this is from the age of like 12, 13, how much is a restaurant making, what are their costs, um, their growth paths, all of that. So, and we, we keep doing that, right? Um, up until today, actually. So, so I studied finance um, and I went to university. I didn't really know what I was going to do. Um, I started hearing people getting into either the route of investment banking or uh, management consulting. I didn't. I saw investment banking uh, to be a little bit more interesting. It sounded like you can make more money in it, um, and I just took on that challenge. 
uh, was very focused on coming back to the region. It was 2010 post uh, the recession. Getting a job uh, in North America wasn't that easy, and I just didn't want to waste time and demotivate myself. So I thought it would make most sense to focus on getting the best job in the region. And I did get quite lucky. Uh, landed a job in investment banking at Morgan Stanley in Saudi. Um, so did that for a year in Saudi, and then I, I, a year and a bit. And then I got transferred to Dubai, uh, where I worked out of the office here for a bit. Um, I was let go. Um, there was a redundancy in my team. And I managed a few months after that, two, two three months, to land a job in private equity, which is something that I, I wanted to get into. So moving in from investment banking to private equity, you kind of changed the hat from being an advisor, uh, where you're advising companies on buying companies or selling the company that you're advising. Um, and the transaction ends right there. Whereas with private equity, you identify those opportunities, you buy those companies, and then you put your active management uh, in place um, and portfolio management to you know really cr help create value so that eventually you sell those companies. So it doesn't stop with the transaction. Um, it actually starts with the transaction, uh, you know, ends. Um, so I wanted to do that just to get kind of like uh, learn about creating value. Um, as opposed to kind of like being a salesman and trying to like pitch why you should buy this company. And um, did that for a year. I think within that one year, I learned more than I learned, I would say, at Morgan Stanley in three years. And uh, it's just because I, I think it comes down to me. I was really interested in, in the work. Um, and there was a moment where we were buying a gym, a chain of gyms in Jordan. And my mother's Jordanian. And I would go down frequently meet with the with the CEO, the owners, and the new COO that we hired. And the CEO they brought on was some English guy, um, doesn't really know. Um, and for me, I, I kind of have a bit of that hustle. Uh, and we identified a problem. I, I've actually identified it, that the bathrooms were a big deal. It was a center point of where you enter into the gym and where you exit. Um, and if you don't have a good experience in the bathroom, then um, it would really hurt retention. Um, and I, I literally, you know, they, they're trying to, they were trying to fix. And I went to my boss and said, Hey, listen, you know, I'm just going to go down to Jordan. I'm going to get some plumbers. and I'm going to fix this because this is getting ridiculous. Uh, how no one's, you know, on top of this. And he looked at me and he's like, honestly, you're too expensive for that problem. Uh, and, and that's where I realized I'm like, you know what? I think I need to roll up my sleeves even more. Um, and literally a few weeks after that, I got an opportunity uh, to work at Uber where I was one of the first employees. Um, I was I managed first, um, launching the city of Jeddah, launching Uber X in the region. So I was I was the one who brought that in here. And then I was working the operations team in uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Uh, so that's kind of like my story in a nutshell. Uh, one year after doing Uber, um, I went back to, I had kind of like a flirt between, between doing my own thing and going to Uber. And then I did go to Uber, and then I actually went back to the original idea, which is Washman. Right. Okay. Amazing. Incredible. And, and, and what a journey. There's a couple of questions I had in there, because when I was looking at your background, and I've talked to a couple of people who have been in that, that field before in terms of the investment banking and the private equity, and obviously you had an interest in finance having gone to study in it. And is, that, is it a key driver for you wanting to move into the the business owner, entrepreneurial space. Obviously, you always you had that in you from a young age in terms of those discussions with dad at, at the restaurants. But did that, the, the, the opportunity and the, the experience at Morgan Stanley 
um, and then in, in the private equity sector. Is that is that what stood you in good stead to make that step step into the entrepreneurship and building Washman into the you know the massive success that it is? Yeah, to a certain extent, I could I could say so. Um, I think picking finance wasn't because I wanted to be an entrepreneur in finance suits uh entrepreneurship best i can't i can't say that i just found myself you know i I, originally i was actually doing computer science and unfortunately i pulled out of that even though um if i was in that i would i would have done great um especially going to the tech world uh but i chose finance i think it was kind of like there was a bit of a herd mentality um it it was challenging as well it wasn't like a you know it wasn't a breeze um so finding myself in morgan stanley i was a generalist meaning that we will look at multiple industries. So there, I would say being in investment banking and more so in private equity, you get to a chance to look at multiple companies uh, with different finances um, and, and financial models and uh, business models. And you also obviously start getting into the business plans and on setting the projections. Ultimately, what you're trying to do is value a company. What is the uh, the business worth today? And the valuation of a business is a is kind of a reflection of the future cash flow generation. So you really need to go into the, the details of what is this business? Um, you know, how is it running? How is it going to improve? Uh, are these projections real? Uh, the different scenarios. And yes, there is a technical element knowing how to do that. I think that's the easy part. But I think the more important part is the intuition, understanding those uh, projections, being able to talk to the founders and going into details that they might be hiding. Um, and you need to really put yourself in those shoes. And and I got more of that chance, I would say, as private equity. In private equity, it's like that investment that you're going to be making is your responsibility up until it exits, right? Um, and I in, in investment banking, you kind of pitch it to the client. The client takes that goes to something called an investment committee, which is a board of directors and, and advisors that decide on this um, uh, investment. So in in private equity, I was part of the investment committee, even as a, as as the most junior person on the team. And I've had an instance in one of in one of the committees. I've actually shot down um, one of the investments um, because of some insight that I had as as a junior and no one else had on the team. And we ended up hiring an, uh, a specialist to look into the insight that I came up with. And they were like, yeah, you're right. Um, you know, this, this this doesn't make sense. And that's something that the founders were trying to hide uh, from okay. you guys. So so as my investment banking, I would say you would look more at the financial model and you're kind of trying to beautify it and make it make all, sen- all the sense. Whereas in private equity, it's more towards entrepreneurship where you need to really go the details past the financial model. Uh, and and I think it was a natural entrepreneurship. You do that. You learned kind of the the technicals, and you get a general view. Then I went a bit more specialized. The private equity is focused on consumer-driven businesses, or what they call one step back, meaning you know manufacturing towards consumer-driven uh, businesses. Um, so I got a bit more understanding of the consumer side, and then and then Uber just it was a bit of a leap because it was kind of like stopping that successful career um, with a good trajectory. Um, and taking that risk, but I also had kind of my mindset where, you know, I was making very good money, but I um, was beginning to feel like I, I could get addicted to it and addicted to the lifestyle. And I, I always told myself, I don't know how, even though I like money, is that I need to make a move out before I become, let's say, too comfortable or my salary is too 
much of an opportunity cost kind of to give away uh, when considering to make the leap. And I, I did it at a young age where I could still, you know, hustle, live um, with three people in a one. I could do that kind of stuff at a young age. And I think that was quite important. Yeah, yeah, I know. I agree 100% from, from that side of things. It gets harder and harder to do that as we move through the life journey. Uh, as much as we think we could do it, it's different. <laughs> Actually, just so that, you know, I, I was in private equity. I moved into like kind of the, the dream apartment that I always wanted to move into in the building that I wanted to move into. And then I found myself um, having my co-founder uh, come and crash my place. My brother who wanted to move to Dubai, my cousin who wanted to move to Dubai, just trying to share the, share as much of the cost where I I was able to completely afford it to like, I can barely afford it. Right. Uh, and it became kind of like a refuge uh, for this journey, I would say. Right. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm sure that it also fostered some of that, uh, those conversations and that drive and the the catalyst to, you know, make it, make it work. And and on that, I, that was something that I wanted to, to to sort of talk about there. You said that you kind of, you went to, it was a decision to go to Uber or go into your own thing, right? And then you you kind of flitted between them and then went to Uber and then came back. Can you explain a little bit about that? Because it's really important for those that are in that position of thinking, yeah, I want to do it. I've got a job. I'm thinking of doing it. And I wanted to sort of talk about your experience of that decision-making process. So, so, that, so this is an excellent question because if it wasn't for kind of like a few events that happened during that time, I would have probably maybe been stuck still and, and found it difficult to make the breakthrough. Right. So as much as I was a finance guy being investment banking and private equity, I still had a very traditional uh, idea um, or, uh, about how do you start your own business. So, you you know, you have a successful career, you save a bit of money, and then you use a bit of that money kind of to bootstrap yourself and to get in. And um, that means, you know, I need to be in my job for a very long time. I don't come from, you know, my dad is not just going to kind of come and give me here's uh, 500,000 dirhams, even though 5,000 uh, dirhams is actually to me, right? It doesn't, it doesn't do anything for your business. Um, so no one's going to give me that kind of money uh, from my family. I don't have that kind of money. And I was always scared, you know, about th that concept. And then during my time in investment banking, one of my bosses, fiancés at the time, she was pitching for her startup um, and what she wanted to do. So he's like, he's like, listen, come and check this out. This might be an interesting opportunity if you have a bit of money. And at the time, I did have a bit of money to invest. And I was, I was investing. And I was like, okay, let me look into this. Uh, so he invited me over to his house. Uh, she did this whole pitch. And she explained something about, you know, that we're going to invest the seed uh, for 20% of the business. And... And I started asking questions. I'm like, how much are you putting into the business? And she's like, I'm putting nothing. And I'm like, that doesn't make too much sense. She's like, no, that's how it is. My sweat equity is the rest. You put the 20. Uh, and then I'm like, okay, but how, is it need the 20%? No, there's something called a convertible debt. I'm like, how does that work? And why are we doing convertible debt? That just doesn't make sense. Uh, why isn't it equity? And it was, I started learning through that process. You know, the point of a convertible, not the, the power of it, you know, which makes those conversations much easier because we're not talking about a valuation today. We're talking about an expected valuation with uh, an institutional investor down the road and you're getting a discount, let's say, towards that. I'm like, OK, that's pretty cool. That makes sense. Um, I started understanding the power of sweat equity and and on, understanding that th there's benchmarks to these numbers. Right. The, the, she didn't just pull it out of her uh, thin air. It's, it's, it's something that's been practiced in the industry. Um, more so, let's say, in, in Europe and North America 
and less so, I would say, here in the region. And, and during that time, I would say that was around 2013, there wasn't a lot of startups. Like the only real startup that was around was maybe the beginning of Karim. Karim, I think, was mm. one, one and a half year. Um, so raising money in the region wasn't, wasn't clear. <clears throat> we needed, um, we didn't have the benchmarks uh, and we needed to learn from North America and Europe what they, they were doing. And, you know, the, this, um, this entrepreneur that I met, she was, you know, smart enough to be able to take the, those learnings from outside and try and bring them to the region. And that was kind of like the flick uh, of the switch for me. Like I was, it completely shifted the way I thought of uh, how do I start my business? And I'm like, you know, what? I'm going to do the exact same thing for my next idea. So I started uh, brainstorming consumer businesses. Um, uh, Uber was, you know, a, fa- a fascinating one at the time. I'm like, how can I do the Uber for something else? Uh, I was looking at maize. I was looking at groceries and I was looking at laundry. And I found laundry to be kind of like um, easier competition. Uh, not, no one's really looking at the problem. And I'm looking way. And I thought I would do it myself. There was a bit of competition in town. There was laundry box that raised a bit of money, but I was like, I'm like, these guys are doing it completely wrong. And I had my kind of take on on, on how to do this. So I approached a friend uh, who introduced me to a friend and we sat down, we clicked from the minute we she introduced me. Um, she's a Harvard grad uh, that just joined Uber. And I told her the idea, I'm like, you know, leave Uber and come and join um, this new idea. I didn't have a name at the time. And she managed to convince me. She's like, listen, there's a lot of learning at Uber. Um, we're giving equity away. And I think you would be a perfect fit. So literally, I interviewed the day after. Three days later, I got an offer. And I had to make a decision. It was kind of a big uh, drop um, in pay. Uh, but there was an equity component that I had to kind of flirt with. Um, and I made it happen. Um, joined Uber. One year later, I, I five or three sixty days. I don't know what it is. Um, three, I, I quit like nine a.m. I was so right. done with that company, um, and I, I went back to the original idea. Right. Interesting. Interesting. So then um, you said you know you, you were looking at a couple of ideas and uh, your background. What what was it about? the laundry sector that you know from what you were doing you, you, was it purely just this is an opportunity in the market for me to get into or, or is it you know we you know i can i'm again silly question but i'm passionate about laundry or what was it because people are looking at their different opportunities thinking well i'm super passionate about this i have this opportunity i'm quite good at this or was it more you know what this is a a gap in the market that isn't necessarily something that i'm super interested in but i can see the potential just from a commercial business perspective yeah, so uh, I I wouldn't say I was passionate about laundry, right? So as an entrepreneur, looking the w- the way I was thinking every day, is, let me be very critical of the life around me, and from that I can find opportunity. So I was saying, oh, if this was done better, I even stuff like uh, thinking I was, you know, my ideas. I would be like, I can't toilet paper just dissolve in in water in the toilet, and that's an idea in itself. So I was just thinking of all types of problems and trying to come up with business. And the one that had, let's say, a problem that no one was solving, and then I kind of try and solve it in my head, then I find another problem which I can still solve, and then another problem that I can solve. I can see kind of this iteration of problem solving, and that kind of like kickstarts the engine in my head, for instance. And then eventually, after solving so many problems around the same problem, 
um, you end up having a business uh, model around it, right? And you start having your unique touch on how you're going to solve each problem. And all of that together ends up being kind of the business model. So that was, I would say, you know, laundry specific. Um, I, I, I did have a personal kind of laundry problem myself. I did see it as a pain point. Um, I would outsource all my laundry. I would get a lot of damages. I wouldn't be able to audit my bills. What did I send out? What did I not you know, send out? Uh, I didn't pay my bills for like six orders, seven orders. A guy comes and says, here's, you know, just a few receipts. I have no idea if they're right or wrong. Yeah. Uh, things are missing. Things are damaged. Uh, I keep switching from one laundry to another. Um, I work late nights being investment banking. You know, the guy isn't available at, you know, 10, 10 p.m., 11 p.m. to come and pick up my clothes. Um, so so it was there were there were these kind of like four years of problems that I would um encounter and then there was this is interesting so i remember and there was i was having my yearly review and my yearly review was a very bad one so it was like it was baseline and there was exceeding baseline and there was like i don't know many levels above that i was below baseline i was right. as low as it gets right okay. and i i think it was it was kind of like one of those political um relationships with you and your boss and all that kind of stuff uh, i was also not an easy person to manage i had my views uh, i was i was doing really well operationally speaking uh, you know looking at my kpis and all that i was really on top of it and i i, I think i had a bit of an ego as well so me and my boss didn't click he gave me a review which i th i thought was complete like bs mm -hmm. uh till today i think it is uh, and i've kind of proved it wrong if i was going to look back <laughs> at it I went back home and I'm like, you know what? I'm done. I'm done working with people uh, that that you know are being treated this way, where 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 you know you're good, and you know it's up to someone to come and say, hey, listen, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna put pressure on you, in 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 ways that are just unjust. And I wanted to take things into my own hands, so I went back home. I I happened to order laundry that day, and my laundry guy came. And I, I, I believe my dad was at my place at that time. And he sat there uh, and, and the laundry guy came in and I looked at him. I'm like, listen, you're going to be here for like 15 minutes. I'm going to drill you with questions. And I started asking him all the questions. He didn't understand. He's just, a, you know, the driver. You know, how many yeah. pickups per day do you do? What's the maximum you could do? What's your average? Uh, what's your average bill? I started getting onto all the assumptions that I had in my head to build that financial model, which I ended up also building in my head. And then right there and then I'm like, you know what? I'm doing this. That's it. This this makes complete sense. Um, there's money in this. And and there's obviously a problem that I'm going to be solving. And that was kind of like the uh, the real switch where I walked in next day. I actually had to wait, not next day. I had to wait one week because I was getting my shares from Uber for resting for one year. Yeah. I got those shares nine and 9 a.m. I looked at my boss. I'm like in the room right now. He's like, no, you need to book my calendar. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's my time right now. <laughs> Let's go. And then it, it ended right there and then, which was quite satisfying. I think I had the best closure, um, which was motivating at the same time because I needed that fire. I needed someone to really piss me off so I can I can go in um, and build my own businesses and prove to my ex-colleagues or to my boss that, that you know, I'm better than all of you. Uh, it, yeah. it sounds a little egotistical. It's not a little. It's very egotistical and I was a little conceited. But I needed that, um, and I've I've talked to other entrepreneurs who kind of you know have had an ex girlfriend that pissed them off and drove them to like uh, building a business, uh, and I needed a bit of a spark. And I'm I would say I've 
probably maybe using that more of an excuse as opposed to it being the complete real, say, reality of what actually happened. I've, I've probably framed something in my head um, to really give myself an excuse to spark up and, and start my own business. Sure. Well, whatever, however you framed it, it obviously works. But a lot of people like say it's a catalyst, right? It's something, it's either that somebody really makes them mad or you're backed against the wall and you're in a position where, you know, well, I've got to do this or I'm, or nothing's going to happen. It, the it one got, way he- got a little dr- dramatic, actually. Uh, I'll give you a bit of the drama. So, so Uber at the time, it's a lot, a lot of young guys, right? A lot of mm-hmm. egos, I would say, you know, hitting heads. Sure. Uh, so my boss's boss, who's like one year older than me or two years older than me, uh, found out that I'm doing this and and creating this company called Washman. And Uber, for some reason, thought that they owned the Uber for X, meaning anything that's Uber potential. And and they kind of they went to the to the legal team in in California and they thought, hey, there's this. Uh, um, employee that's leaving and he's starting Uber for laundry, and we need to we need to caution him, uh, uh, you know, against the anti clauses that he's signing. In his and they sent me this legalese, I don't know, massive document um, saying we and it was actually the first official, let's say, um, recognition of the word washman was right. through Uber. Like we heard that you, in quotations, uh, you're starting a company called Washman. You need to watch out. And it says Washman. It's not like Ryderman or 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 you know Captain Men or something like that. It was literally washing. And they sent me a, a legal notice. And I looked at them like, guys, 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 you're being a little silly. I'll sign it. I'm not. I'm not competing with you. This is laundry. Um, and then and then it got even more dramatic. The boss told all my friends, you're not allowed to like or share anything on social media. Um, really, Washman. Yeah, yeah. My cousin was working there. He told me all the stories. Um, it was, and that just really fired me up. I had my best okay. friend work, had my cousin working there, and they're telling me these stories. I had, I made a lot of good friends as well. And they're like, "Yeah, this is bullshit." The way they're they're dealing with it internally, um, and I, as 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 fuel, um, I would say that fuel lasted maybe a good two years up until I kind of got like my Series A, and then I stopped. I'm like, you know what? I'm I'm. Uh, I, I'm, I have a real business here. I've established myself. And then I found other ways to kind of motivate myself. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I guess that it, it has a, a time, a life, li- a lifetime, I suppose, from that side of things. And from, in that, that two-year period, from, from having that satisfaction of saying, I'm out, <laughs> telling the boss where to go, and, and putting the, the, the financial model that you built in your mind from the market research from the driver and all of the other stuff that you've done, over that two-year period, um, what was the journey like in terms of how were you funding it? How was it? How long was it until you were profitable? Were you profitable in those years, or were you going to seed to to get yourself to that kind of position, or was it expansion was the purpose of seed? Can you tell us a little bit about those first couple of years of of making that decision yeah. and then going for it? So you so I, I entered an accelerator called Flat Six Labs. They just first the first class in um, Abu Dhabi. Um, so I joined that what you do you kind of like frame your business model uh you create your pitch and then you go to something called demo day which you pitch to investors um and then you try and raise money after demo day so we did demo day and then literally like six days later after demo day we managed to raise uh what we were asking for which which was four hundred thousand dollars i didn't raise it from the investors in the room i managed to go to friends and family so ex-colleagues uh that i was working with basically um and just you know friends of friends uh and and the minute you have like 
one per, the first person invests, the rest come very quickly for some sure. reason because you have that initial traction, and and then there there is kind of some sort of FOMO that naturally just starts to happen, and it ends up ended up over oversubscribing. Um, actually, we wanted three hundred three hundred fifty thousand dollars, and then and then one of my friends' dads called me. And he said, you're taking my money. I'm like, no, no, you know, it's only 350. He's like, you're being silly, man. Like, you can even take $500,000. 350 is nothing. Just take my 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 money. So I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll you know, increase the ticket just for you because just because you're close to us. He's like, no, you you, you need money. Like, so you you raise money. You, you should raise more money than than you think you need. Mm-hmm. Because, and I've, I've had that kind of rule on every round. Um, and it always ended up kind of saving you some way or another. So we did that. And the seed round was for a proof of concept um, to get the app out. And the idea was originally an app idea uh, where you build an app, you find a laundry that you want to partner with, you find some drivers that you want to partner with, you connect kind of the supply chain uh, with this app. So we did that. Four months later, we launched the app uh, in uh, end of September 2015. Uh, we raised the money in June 2015. And then we got kind of our initial traction um, of one year um, by, I would say, nine months. By the summer of 2016, we were kind of running out of money and we didn't know really what to do. Uh, But we had a good potential with um, a good VC that invests in laundry around the world. Uh, So I told my investors, I'm like, I need a bit more money. I need about $100,000 more to get a bit of runway until I close this deal with this good investor that we found. And then we managed to successfully um, close a Series A, I think at the time, over a million dollars. Sounded like a lot of money back in the day, but Series A, you know, for a million dollars today is nothing. Um, So we got a million dollars from this investor. Um, this investor has been very supportive. Uh, they've managed to do internal rounds, support many internal rounds so that we can focus on the business. And then we managed to get enough of attraction. I'm going to say, Hey, listen, now the business model needs to shift. We were trying to connect the dots by outsourcing to laundries. Now we need to bring everything in house. Um, and there was a shift in mentality. So, uh, we created the deck. We went out for a series B. We raised six and a half million dollars uh, on our Series B. Um, we brought in Henkel from Germany, which are the producers of uh, Persil uh, laundry detergent. They manufacture it, so that was interesting. Um, you know, flew down to Germany quite a few times, uh, got a few VCs out of uh, Lebanon, as well as the the main VC that's invested in us from day one, uh, and then we did it. Sounds kind of like. Uh, an extension of the previous round, especially after COVID, financial uh, financials weren't looking too too good for us. So we had to go back to our existing investors, and they they supported the business. Um, a total of around eleven million dollars was raised. Uh, and you asked a question: How do you look at profitability in every milestone? Yeah. So in seed, we didn't look at profitability; it was proof of concept up until we get enough traction, so we can raise the Series A. But when we raised the Series A in my projections, I always had a path that I didn't want to be in a situation where I run out of money and I have a business that goes to zero. I want to be able Mm to run out of the money and still have a business that I can run till I raise the next round. So, 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 so there was always, let's say, a path to profitability. And we did achieve it before the Series B. We're like, okay, we're not burning money now. Great. There's a bit of profit, but that's not good enough. We need to raise a big next big round. Uh, and we raised the Series B, and same thing. Now, we're, now we kind of 
on that path of profitability. We don't burn anymore. Um, and so, so that was important for us. Other businesses or other entrepreneurs might, might not like that strategy. They will say, hey, listen, it's about growth, 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 going into Saudi Arabia, going to Qatar, going into another big market uh, and chasing that, uh, which, which you know, I respect. Um, but for me, for my level of uh, risk that I want to take, I, I just I just can't do that kind of business. Uh, other people are really good at it. I'm just not. And I need I need a bit of comfort. I need a bit of a um, security uh, for me to be able to run my business day to day, especially when I have 250 employees. I have seed investors who are friends and family. I take that money very seriously. And I just want to make sure that I succeed, at least on the first one. Maybe in the se second venture, maybe I'll take a bit more risk just because I'm a bit more comfortable and I have a bit more learning. But being a first-time entrepreneur, I was quite cautious. Yeah. Well, that that's, that that makes sense, and it's also very it's 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 refreshing to hear. I have to say, Rami, because a lot of people that I talk to that go the opposite direction. You know, is it's all about massive growth? It's about ten xing this. It's about expansion and so forth, which again comes with risk. And I admire them as well. I think I lean more towards your thinking on this as well, in terms of when you have that investment and and what it means, and also just getting it right. You know that this is. This is the the initial business. It's evolved, of course, but it's also about making it the best that it can be. And once that's happening, then let's look at copy and pasting this into other places where we can make that happen. And for me personally, I also believe that that should, in theory, be a, an easier path then to do that because you've got the blueprint, right? You've got the blueprint. Yeah. That works. You know that it works. We've, we've put a lot, if everything, into making this work. Now let's go go and, uh, and push it out there. So, you know, that's fascinating from that side of things. Um, now with Washman at, at the moment, obviously you, you've done this, you've got it to a successful uh, place. You, you, you said that you're not, you know, you're not burning money. It's a profitable business. What, what's, what's the future hold for Washman? Is that something that you can talk about in, in terms of the, where you want it to go? Yeah. So um, next year is, is a year where we're focusing on seeing, understanding what is the cash flow generation potential of this business and trying to reap that. Um, so there's going to be a lot of you know cost optimization, building tech that will help us with uh, achieving more scale, um, and that's really the main focus. There isn't going, there isn't any expansion outside of our geographies, which is Dubai and Abu Dhabi, uh, which are Dubai and Abu Dhabi for now. Um, and we still think there is at least a 3x potential in the current market. So um, we are the leader by far, uh, but we we are servicing on a month, like I would say 13, 14,000 customers a month. And we think, you know, between Dubai and Abu Dhabi, can we get, you know, 30,000 customers, 40,000 customers? I think that's um, definitely available and the city is obviously growing. So we want to grow with that. Once we're at a you know much bigger stage and we're really cash flow generating, um, it changes kind of your position as a business because you can go out, you can raise debt on the back of that profitability. You can you know you can there's ways that you can funnel that money and amplify it without needing to go back to investors and dilute as a founder. Um, and that's where in, the growth might be interesting uh, for us to start thinking about going, let's say, outside of the UAE. Um, and we still have a lot of homework to do. So when I look at the product roadmap of what we need to do, we're still, you know, at least 18 months from today to get to kind of like 
um, what's in my head today, right? And you ask me six months from now or a year from now, you know, how long is left for your product? I will still have more things to build. Right? <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. Um, there's something that I was just thinking about then that um, I was going to, oh yeah, it was coming back to this idea of, of obviously there's a huge opportunity there in the market in terms of what you say, in terms of the monthly ability to service customers. Obviously it's your business. Obviously you know the ins and outs of it. What is it genuinely that is making you the market leader? And what is it that would make those additional 25, 30,000 customers pick Washman over the other other uh, suppliers in the market? So when when we survey our customers and we ask them, like, why do they use Washman? The the thing that kind of stands out the most is the convenience uh, element that I would say is quality. Um, so this experience for the understanding, you know, their pain points um and their psychology uh is very important and we've you know i would say we're very good at that where we focus on consumer psychology uh getting into small details that might affect your psychology um and kind of retain you as a, a as, as a customer we do uh the competition don't do uh, and when i say competition it's really your your maids at home um the washing machine at home the laundry next door, right? I wouldn't say there's a pure play competitor to us uh, in this market. And if there is someone who's a competitor who's been here for a, a few years, you're really a competitor. If, you, if you've been in the market for a few years, you need to be at least, you know, 20, 30% um, of my market, right? Um, but you're not. You're like, you're like 2, 3% of Washman. So I don't necessarily con consider you as um you know you're a competitor but there isn't really any competition there sure. sorry I, I lost my train of thought what was the question again and that, i mean i think you've really kind of answered it there it was, it was it was really what the what is the reasoning that somebody is going to choose you guys over uh you know whoever is out there in in the market and as you stated today the, whilst there are some people doing something similar they're not necessarily competition uh from that side of things but the convenience yeah, I, I, factor. I want to add to that so so yeah. There is your traditional offline laundry, which they own the laundry, they have a shop, all of that. And then you have the kind of the online model. And a lot of the online models that have come have come into the market and left the market are they've tried to approach this from an asset light or a marketplace uh, approach where they don't want to own the laundries, they don't want to own the operations. Uh, even one of my competitors, they don't even have a single employee in the country. Uh, they operate out of India and out of the UK. Um, they just skip this tech and that's it. For us, we started off like that, and we realized there's a lot of problems, especially if you want to scale, if you want to, if you want to play, the, you know, if you want to become uh, the market leader, not just market leader, market creator. Because I don't just look at my market as what is there out there to acquire, but how can I grow this market? And and people who are not sending their stuff outside, how can they send their stuff, you know, to Washman or consider? Uh, outsourcing their laundry. So that's why I say the competitor is, is not just your laundromat uh, next door, but your washing machine. Because mm. if you stop using your washing machine, it's... that for me is is growing the market. Um, so, so building the supply chain and owning the supply chain is a very important part of what we do. Because when we build tech, right, you can build tech, but if you have a partner that doesn't want to use that tech, it becomes very difficult to kind of control uh, the experience for the customers. Um, so we we look at responsibility uh, and control, kind of like 
are very related and you have to play those two together. If you control everything, then you can be responsible, right? The responsibility that we're seeing in other tech businesses like the food business or other laundry businesses that don't own the supply chain, they don't control, their responsibility is more apologetic where it's like, oh, I'm sorry for you know ruining your experience. Here's a few, uh, uh, here's a bit of credit. It's apologetic, right? You can't be always apologetic with your that's not being responsible, right? If you know that you're going to be apologetic on the next experience because you cannot fix one, two, and three, and you don't because you don't have the control of one, two, and three, then I don't think that's real responsibility. Mm-hmm. And the way we look at it is different. You know, you need to be responsible of you know your supply chain from A to Z by being able to control it with you know your um, standard operational procedures, the tech that is able to layer on top of it to be able to monitor every step of the way and then you do have a problem you're not taking responsibility and being apologetic you're taking responsibility because you know exactly what you need to do to fix it back in your supply chain and you're able to fix that very quickly and that kind of product iteration for us has been kind of like every month we're just becoming a better and better service i see in the numbers i see in the kpis um and we're the only ones that are doing that and doing that aggressively and learning from our own mistakes and taking responsibility. So the barriers to entry today into our type of business is very, very, very high because you will need you know, years of this you know, day-to-day uh, learning to be able to build product and build tech. And, and, and by the time you build that, we're, we're somewhere yeah. else, right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so, yeah, you've so moved it forward. Our, our focus on products and our obsession with this problem. So we're not really obsessed with laundry. We're obsessed with the problems that comes with laundry. And it's it's insane the amount of problems that you get out of it. You're talking about, you know, we washed on a given day more than 20,000 unique items, right? These are not uniforms that are like, you know, this standard. These are every single item is unique, right? And you need to be able to create flows for every single item and then bring it back into your order and deliver that successfully without damaging or losing the items. And we've managed and imagine because everything is unique, there is there are so many problems that, that comes with that. And that's the fascination. That's why we build the tech. You as a customer will see an app. That's like the surface of like the iceberg. That's probably 1%, 2%. Yeah. What we're really b- building is in the back end. Sure. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it makes perfect sense. And we've, we've in a couple of businesses that are app based as well, so I completely understand that uh, in terms of what people see and what's going on, you know, the uh, behind the scenes um, is incredible. Um, I, I think that idea of responsibility is really interesting in terms of the, the cyclical nature of business because I remember way back when uh, when Jado Pedo started. I don't know if you remember Jado Pedo, and they they he, the guys made a conscious decision to have their delivery drivers in house sat in the warehouse at the beginning doing nothing but knowing that they were there so that if there was an issue with logistical delivery they could take responsibility for it and say ah, okay it's our guys no if you order it before 11 o'clock it will be with you by three o'clock guaranteed and you can't offer that guarantee if you're outsourcing that to a third party yeah. because as much as they will say they will <laughs> we know what you know we know what happens here in the uae sometimes it doesn't yeah. happen and and the, and like you said i think it's a very very great way of describing that is that apologetic approach and it's always here's a credit here's a credit that you know free next time and and as a consumer you're kind of thinking oh okay well i got credit and you know 
Kareem and Uber do this as well. They, they, they always put the, the credit back into your wallet. And you think, oh, at least that's that. But it's not fixing the problem because they're always putting credit back into your wallet. You think, yeah, but why do they keep cancelling? And why do these guys not do this? And why is this a problem? And from a laundry perspective, especially if it's, you know, these unique items that sometimes mean a lot to people uh, and then it comes back and it's, you know, it's got a mark or it's got a hole and, and then the laundry's, like, oh, well, I think it was there already. And you're getting into this argument, you're thinking, oh, why am I doing this? And this, I'm just coming back around to this whole idea of this attention that you guys pay to the psychological uh, needs of the customer. I'm really fascinated to see what's going to happen in the future of how you can get people to part with their washing machine. Because I'm, I'm thinking about this right now. So I'm thinking, oh, I wonder, could we not have a washing machine in our in our place? I wonder if that's feasible. And uh, And I'm really fascinated about how you guys are going to kind of make me believe that that is true and get me to do that because I fundamentally, I hate doing the laundry. <laughs> so if I could actually get it out and dry and back and, and, and I didn't need my washing machine, then that's, that's a game changer in my mind. Yeah, so we, we do have some offerings to just go th through some of the stuff that we do. So hmm. we have a bag that we've launched. Actually, let's start with laundry and dry cleaning was always, you know, in the market here in the UAE before Washman was always focused on, let's say, formal wear and workwear. You know, you, you would really send out, um, you wouldn't send your underwear and your socks, right? Yeah. So my mindset was um, that when when the laundry guy used to come to my house, I would literally the laundry in front of him and be like, this you take, this I'm going to do, you. this you take. And then I realized that there's a big basket that I am actually not sending out. So we introduced a concept that's popular in North America called wash and fold which is for 65 dirhams. You can fill this bag as much as you can. It's about 10 kgs, uh, equivalent to almost maybe uh, two and a half to three, to uh, three loads that you would normally do at home. And we would wash, dry, and what you would be doing at home, very similar machines, but we would do it for you, right? Um, so now, you know, you as, you know, someone who uses a washing machine at home, uh, it is affordable to send your underwear and your socks and your gym wear and all that kind of stuff to Washman because it's 65 dead humps. You know, that's the price of a drink. That's the price of a shot yeah. that you would the weekend, right? Yeah. Um, but that's saving you literally three cycles. Um, then later in um, COVID, we saw that workwear went down. We have all this pressing equipment um, and we have all these machines, obviously. And we launched something called homeware, home care. And home care is a bag that you fill. There's a limit. There's 15 items. Uh, that you can fill up like your bed sheets, your linens, your pillowcases, anything that's like non-clothes, let's, let's call it, um, into this bag and we'll clean and press those items. So now for 75 dirhams, you're getting kind of a hotel experience at home. You come back home, uh, you have perfectly pressed bed sheets. If you have an experience perfectly pressed bed sheets, you, you, it's, you're really, you know, if you, if you try home care, you will never go back because right. <laughs> you realize that your bed sheets need to be pressed. Um, you get that hotel finish, um, or that or that feeling of when you first bought your bed sheets uh, and you laid them out. Uh, you get that every week, right? So we launched home care. So now instead of doing your bed sheets at home and trying to dry them yeah. on you know, the edge of your door or on the sofa in your living room, um, you can just send the rooms and we solve all that problem. So these are kind of the problems we are identifying and trying to solve them at scale. You know. One is expensive, but you cannot just take, you know, the price of a shirt for me and compare that with the market. You need to kind of look at the overall package of what my underwear 
pricing, let's say, is much, much, much cheaper than the cheapest laundry next door, just because of this bulk offer. If you're going to send 15 bed sheets, um, you know, for us, it's an average of five dirhams. No one would do that for you for five dirhams because ironing a bed sheet takes about 20 minutes. But I have the machinery to be able to do that in one minute, right? right. We invested in a specific process to be able to do that. So if you look at us as a package, there is a lot of value, right? And value um, isn't, you know, it's, it's, it's a perception of uh, what you're getting out of it versus the price, right? Yeah. And that's what we kind of go for, a value. Now, the new offering that we're, we're going down is we've launched shoe cleaning. So you talk the shoe cleaning market. How big is the shoe market? There isn't really a shoe cleaning market. There's two, three guys in the market doing shoe cleaning. But for us, we've identified a problem. Everyone has dirty shoes. And how do we solve that problem? And we want to solve it the washman way, which is, you know, you put it in a bag, you leave it outside of your door. A few days later, you come back. They're perfectly renewed, rejuvenated outside of your doorstep. And that seamlessness, that convenience, and then obviously the quality that comes with it um, is what's going to um, allow you to trust Washman with the next thing that we're going to be building, right? So we're building a brand of trust around, you know, Washman cares for whatever they do, right? For your items, like whether it's your home items, whether it's your your clothing, your shoes, and potential other things that we, we are thinking that Washman could also care for. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it's fascinating. It really is, and and I think it's. Uh, I always really enjoy talking to you know people like yourself because you're problem solvers at the end of the day, and you're problem solvers in areas where people are not necessarily looking to solve problems because it's just okay. The laundry is the laundry. I just put it in the machine, and yeah, I have that. But even as you're talking me through that process for the the sheets and everything, I think yeah. It makes sense. You know, it just makes sense. As you're talking, I say, yeah, that's ridiculous because that's exactly what we have to do. We have to try and hang these things out and they don't feel like they, when we first bought them and all of exactly as you said there. So I think that a and, huge and, part and of it. There's, so, there's something interesting. When solving problems, you might have some really basic problems that sound really obvious or very easy to solve or you think that these problems are more important than the others. But as you develop, you start realizing your basic assumptions are actually wrong and they start changing, right? Mm-hmm. I've had a recent realization, me and my, my business partner are still kind of like fighting over this. Whereas what is what is Washman really solving? And, you know, we were saying something around, we always used to say that we're solving the problem of, like, say, you know, saving you time, right? Mm-hmm. Washman saves you. You don't need to do your laundry. A few clicks and, and, and we'll save you, you know, X amount of hours per week. And then I realized, I'm like, actually, we're not saving time, right? Because today, you know, if you talk to a CEO that uses Washman, for instance, as, you know, a maid that can do the laundry for him, he has, you know, another laundry that he's already outsourcing. A lot of is already used. It's not like we're saving them time by using Washman. The, the alternative is already being outsourced, right? Mm-hmm. To some, whether it's inside of the house or outside of the house. So I started realizing, I'm like, you know what? It's actually continuity that we're solving for, right? Where every time I look at my wardrobe and it's it's always perfectly pressed, it's always ready for me, it's always there, right? I'm not waiting for that you know shirt that I love to come back into my wardrobe so I can wear it again. It's always there. And that continuity has a different, now, now I'm, I'm, I'm getting really fascinated by the idea. And if I'm identifying so many problems that are you know sub associated let's say with continuity and 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 now i'm solving other problems that becomes an opportunity and probably uh leads me to something new or makes the experience even better right yeah. so it's it's really fascinating where 
you know, you're really anchored towards certain ideas, but it's quite important for you to break those biases uh, sometime do- during the road. And it's very difficult also, you know, to explain it to employees. Be like, oh no, Rami is CEO. He, he believes things in a certain way. Even I have to kind of break through my beliefs, right? If I'm anchored towards something, then the people who are following my belief are also anchored towards that. So I need to break it. And I'm trying to even teach um, uh, you know, the, the, the people that work for us is that even I, I could be wrong, right? Even if there's something that we've been practicing for years, you need to be able to challenge that because it might be kind of not applicable for today's time or, or be breaking away from that. There's new opportunities to go after. Um, and that's, that's, that's always, you know, difficult to kind of, uh, disassociate yourself from previous thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also, it's very, um, you know, you're very self-aware. I think it's a lot of businesses and business people looking at it that way, but it takes, you know, it takes a certain approach to this. You mentioned the word earlier back in your early days of this idea of ego, because I think as a CEO, as a leader of a company, it's easy for an ego to be there. But I think it's also so important as you've highlighted there for your employees or to, to be able to come to you and say, you know what, Barry, you know what, Rami, I'm not entirely sure about that. And and then being able to have that conversation and for, for you to go, hmm, interesting. Yeah, I never thought about it like that. Let's let's blow this out a little bit further. And and that actually grows. Go ahead. I have a funny story about that. It has nothing to do with it was this summer. I was in New York. So I, I checked into a hotel. It was a really nice hotel. Um and it was I think one of the chains. And um when I got into the hotel, the employee that was working there. He's African-American, you know, so he's, he's got this charm going on. His accent was quite funny. I just landed in New York and um, he's saying, hey, listen, you know, this is he's showing me this paper and he's like, if you need anything, call this number. Um, the gym is on this floor. Uh, you know, the restaurant is on that floor. And just, you know, if you notice anything uh, of human trafficking in the hotel or anything like that, please let us know. And then he goes on to the next point and then the next point. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> You mean by human trafficking? Okay. I just checked into your hotel and you're telling me if you notice any human trafficking. And then he looks at me, he's like, you know what? He's like, he's like, you make a really good point. He's like, I've been here for years saying the same thing and I've never questioned it. Okay. <laughs> and here you are questioning why am I saying this every single time? And he's like, you know what? Thank you so much for that. And he he literally like he just left me alone. And he's like, I'm just going to right now and tell him what's up with this thing. He's like, I haven't questioned it for years. Okay, uh, working here. So, so it's it's funny, you know. Some things, you know, it's previous thinking, things that you anchor towards, and you just don't think about questioning them. And it's just, it's just weird how 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 you know you you'd be stuck with that. But sometimes you really need an outsider like myself or someone, a new employee with fresh thinking, right, to come in and say, I, I don't get this. This doesn't make any sense. And you need to be always, you know, receptive to towards that energy, because you you will realize that a lot of things do, do need to change over time. That that might have expired because yeah. you know it worked in the in the early days, but today it's no longer applicable. Yeah, so true. So and true. It, you sound yeah. obvious. When you find them, but it's just <laughs> they fascinate you every time. It's yeah. like it's like wow, we two hundred and fifty employees didn't even notice this right yeah. and we, we all had this kind of belief system that that's 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 right and then when you break from that it's just like it's so obvious and it's so fascinating that but like, i can't believe no one caught that after eight years yeah right it's well, one of- it, it is it is but it's, it also takes i think 
Uh, and it takes a certain kind of culture within a business to, to, to have people come into it and go, I, I feel like I can talk to you about this and go, I just don't get it. And and then, like I said, it seems so obvious, but these these obvious things are only obvious once somebody points them out to us, right? And we go, oh, yeah, well, that is... And the, the most dangerous words in business, from my perspective, is, oh, we've always done it that way. It's like, yeah, just yeah. because we've always right. done it that way doesn't mean that it's right for now and, and so forth. Right. But on that point, how do you then, as the CEO, you're obviously very self-aware, you're very humble as well from that side of things, but how do you develop that within yourself and within your leadership team that this is how we need to approach this so that the the entire organization, the 250 people in here are all, you know, is it open door policy? Is it that there's a continuous feedback loop? How do you do it so that you, A, are aware of it and B, are able to then take action on it? Okay, so, it, I, I, you know, I would say structurally speaking, it, it, it has to do with uh, having the right, let's say, uh, thinkers in the right positions, and a big, a very important position is product managers. So product managers are building um, the app; they're building experiences uh, for the customers. And every time you add a new feature, you need to make sure that the product manager doesn't just add the feature. They need to look at the feature in their, you know, and and kind of like look at the overall picture. And does this new piece fit into what we have been building? And if it doesn't, then we need to rethink things, right? Because if you end up with after feature, after feature, after feature, later down the road, you look at your tool or you look at your product and you'd be like, you know, this is beginning not to make sense. It's not intuitive anymore, right? And, the, you know, this this is an interesting example, actually. I, we always say this in-house. And uh, in, when we we discuss these uh, challenges, when we look at northern North American products like Silicon Valley startups that build products, versus let's say India, where where there's a, a couple of successful uh, startups that are coming out of India, the way they build products in India is always here's a list of so many features, right? And when you use the product, you're like amazing, they have so many things that they can solve for, but it's just so like. It just doesn't make too much sense, and you and you they're just shipping a lot of product very fast, and they're just you know feature after feature after feature, right? And they're trying to go, you know the the bigger that list, the more they think that they can acquire customers. But when you look at this list, but from the from North America, there's more focus on UX UI, even if the features are less, right? There's more kind of like a priority of one than the other. Think you need this feature, but this feature is, is more important. This simplicity is how you need to drive your business, right? So it's it's that kind of thinking that you need to bring in into your product managers, and your product managers um, will be kind of your referee uh, when they're sitting down between you know the engineers who have to think about their problems uh, when solving that specific problem because they also have their way of, of doing it, and then you have your uh, stakeholders, which are your business people, like your operations manager, that you know you're solving a specific operational problem problem through a product. So, and that I, I think that that kind of starts building a culture around it. Uh, another important element is us as founders. We're really let's say good at doing this, um, and we get very involved um, in a lot of the decision making. And to a certain extent, we're, you know, we can be accused of micromanaging certain projects. 
And I think what's important is to be able to pull up. So you need to give opportunities as a founder to your team to try things out, to see them fail, and then step in when they and advise them and then pull yourself out. The more you could do that, the less dependent they would be on you, the less doers, right? And become more thinkers. Because if you're very involved as a founder, I think it's important in the early days, but later on as you, as you mature, you okay. remove that thinking from, from your employees yeah. and you they rely on you for all the thinking, right? Yeah. And it's very difficult to do because you're gonna, and, and it's frustrating, but if you invest in your team and you trust your team and you hire the right people, um, then, then you will, you will really be more impressed um, and proud of you being able to move your way of thinking to to away from you, right? And there's a saying I would say to my employees again, a little uh, conceited, I would say, but say you know you did it better than Lamy, right? <laughs> um, and and you know I, which is amazing because because I love that. I'm like you can do things better than I can. And there are so many employees in this in, in my business today that do things better than I can, right? At a certain point in the beginning, obviously, I was me and my partner were the best uh, when it comes to solving problems. But today, we have people in the, in the business that do it better than we can ever do it. Yeah, which I think is the fundamental of a good business because you have to have people in there. And, and what you've outlined there is, I think, to a lot of our listeners who are either want to be entrepreneurs or just starting out, is this whole idea of of getting yourself on the business, not in the business. As you highlighted there, you go into the business to to, to do certain things, and it might be a little bit of firefighting. You might call it micromanaging, but I think it's really important that you do allow things to happen. You give and empower your uh, employees to make decisions. And if it goes wrong, we support them. And then we look at fixing that problem. But I see so many, I'm guilty of this as well, that I'm not, I, I'm in the business still. And I want to be on the business. And, and that's where yeah. I think a lot of people are on that transition or trying to find that transitional path to get themselves to that point where you, they can you know dip in and out. You know what's interesting about this point on, on or in the business? So when you're in the business, you're obviously really busy and you have an insane life and you, you come back home, you be oh, busy week, busy week, all that kind of stuff. When you're on the business, I realized, again, I'm, 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 I, it might change later on, but I realized I'm actually least busy when, when my team is very busy mm. because <clears throat> I've given out, I've delegated so many things. I've asked for so many things that I know everyone's you know, resources are fully occupied. And now I'm not busy because I cannot create more and just give my team because it's just going to blow up. Right. So yeah. I found myself like just in kind of a waiting, monitoring, um, you know, catching up mode, um, mm-hmm. than than being in. And that doesn't mean I'm I'm less productive. It just means, you know, I'm in that stage of the business where where I'm prioritizing what's important for the team to work on and taking those correct bets, right, is more uh impactful for the business than for me to go in and let's say do things myself today yeah absolutely and and i think that that's fantastic and again testament to how you've built a a, a super successful business that is going to go on uh, and become more successful even from just talking with you there's obviously going to be further uh, i don't know if divisions are the right way but further areas that you're going to fix problems in where as you said with the shoe cleaning maybe there wasn't a perceived problem there, but you're going to create a a, a solution to that problem and, and help people. I guess a big part of it is education for for customers to go. Huh, 
that is a problem. I didn't realize it was a problem, but it is a problem. Uh, and I think that, that that will happen. And it's been absolutely fascinating uh, talking to you about this, Rami. Just as a, as a way of closing this out, and I know we touched on this before we started recording, but one of the questions that I always like to ask our guests is about how they keep themselves on track. Because as I said before, you're obviously in tune. You're aware, you're self-aware in terms of this. Is there anything that you do that helps to keep you on track? Or is this just something that happens naturally for, for Rami or are there mentors are there books are there resources that you utilize or how, how do you make sure that you as Rami are the best version of Rami that turns up every day to make sure that Washman is going where it's supposed to go okay so just to let you know I have I suffer from anxiety so I do have you know long-term let's say chronic anxiety uh, where it affects my body I have a pains all the time um, and I was on medication uh, for for many years, and then I got off medication, and then I went back on it. I've been medication free for a year, and for me, it's it's just you know it's important to to control my anxiety. I I can't say I can completely eliminate it. I just need to be aware of what are the things that I don't do or I do that trigger my anxiety. So, unfortunately, I've you know tried to do kind of like the CBT therapy talk it's it didn't really work too much uh with me i'm not the type of guy that just picks up a book and reads so i don't go for you know i don't read books um but i try and stay active so i play a lot of paddle uh, lately uh that's important um i i try like recently i've been focusing on more doing things in the present as opposed to kind of like uh being free and thinking of the past or the future and I'm more of a future thinker. I don't, I don't think too much of the past. I'm always worried about where are we going to be in one month, in two months, three months. So keep keeping yourself occupied in the present. So lately I've picked up, for instance, music production. I've been like 10 days on it and I go in, you know, five hours. I'm not a musician. I've never was a musician, but I've, I've always had an interest in, in learning how to uh, build music. And I've, I saw that that is quite therapeutic uh, mm-hmm. for me. Um, and I'm just still learning. There's other things that I've also identified, you know, that I do um, to kind of keep myself aware of what triggers me um, and keeping my anxiety in in control. Um, my business partner, on the on the other hand, he's 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 more of the uh, he seeks help with coaches, therapists, uh, a lot of books. It's been, you know, quite effective for him. We do have a lot of conversations about my experiences and his experiences or a certain, you know, thing that he read or a certain practice. Um, and he shares that with me. I have, you know, if there's a book that I really, really need to read. I have my wife, you know, she's really interested in a lot of the topics uh, that I might be interested in. So she ends up picking up the book, reading it, and then us discussing it over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find my ways. Uh, I will books but i just don't have the uh, attention to be able to sit down in front of a book and and, and continue reading i'll just by the third page i'll, I'll that's uh, that's that's what ends up happening for me fair enough isn't it? and great to have a wife that's able to do do that bit in terms of uh, reading it and, and digesting it and then conversing about it but even that in itself i think it is also fascinating and i think it's really important for a lot of our listeners to 
to hear because one of the things that I'm wary of is everybody says the same thing, you know, is that, well, I have this mentor and I have this and I do this and everyone thinks, well, that must mean I must get need to get a mentor and I must need it. But I think what you've highlighted there is that there's, there's lots of different ways, right? There's lots of different ways of doing things for yourself, for your business. And I think that's actually really, really, really important for, for people to hear. So I uh, appreciate yeah, there, you. There are, you know, retreats, uh, rehab, things that you could do. Um, I, I've done something uh, recently and, um, you know, it's motivating to be able to fix yourself and improve yourself and find, you know, that you, you, you gave something a shot and you saw some benefit out of it. Um, it just keeps you going, looking for the next thing. Right. And, yeah. and, and, and that's important, right? It is, it is. And I think what, you, you know, a way I would describe that is that continuous learning for ourselves is that we are always, and if we're not, then that's when it's time to worry i think if you think oh yeah I, I got it i know everything now then then we're we're in a in a difficult place but i, I really appreciate your your candor i mean i appreciate you taking the time to come on and do this uh to do this interview uh, and it's been absolutely fascinating for me i really really have enjoyed a lot of the insights into the world of of, of, of rami you know in terms of your development but also the washman world and it's got me thinking there's there's loads of stuff going around my mind now in terms of what you're doing and how you built this business and uh, and I really really appreciate the time and I invite uh, you over to uh, the facility so in, if in Dubai anytime you want to come by or if actually if, you, if one of your listeners um you can reach out to rami at washman.com r a m i and uh basically if you want to come and check out washman and what we're doing and see the facility as much as I can talk about it hmm. uh when you do come down and visit you know, by the end of it, you'd be like, I'm just, I, I, I didn't even imagine, even after yeah. our conversation, that this is what you guys are doing. So I'd love to, you know, welcome anyone. Um, I enjoy the tours and I'm pretty sure you'll enjoy it as well. You want to bring your family, you, bring, you know, someone with you. It will be quite fun to come and see how we built um, our facility and uh, and our operations and how we think about things. And you see Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Through the tour, I mean, I'll definitely take you up on that at some point. I'll drop you a line, and that would be fascinating for me. And and thank you, very kind offer for for the listeners out there. And I just encourage people to take you up on that offer, regardless, even if it was just to to come and see you and and have a chat with you and see that what you built, because I think it would be it will solidify a lot of what you've talked about there. And again, uh, just to really re-echo my appreciation for your uh, your openness, your honesty, uh, your candor, and your time, Remy. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Barry, for your time. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And to everybody out there listening, thank you very much for tuning in on this episode. As always, if there's anyone else that you'd like us to talk to, drop us a line at wishlist at swanglinese.rocks and we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Swanglinese with your hosts, Barry Lee Cummings and Oscar Endermo. We'll catch you next time.